The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Continuing through our series in the Psalms, we're going to be taking a look at Psalm 116. If you are new to reading the Bible, uh, the Psalms are right in the middle, so it's pretty easy to find, but uh, they're also on page 510 if you want to use one of the Bibles that's in the pew. Here at Westminster, we desire to be a church, not, not just for those who identify with Christ, but those who are spiritually seeking. And we believe that if you're here, that God is already at work trying to get your attention to teach you about himself. And so uh, we're glad you're here. So Psalm 116, page 510 in your Bible. I start at verse 1. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I suffered distress and anguish, and then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all men are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. This psalm is naturally divided into three sections. In verses 1 through 6, the psalmist tells us why he loves the Lord. In verses 7 through 11, he tells us how he rests in the Lord. And in the last section, verses 12 through 19, he tells us what service he renders to the Lord. So why he loves, how he rests, and what service he renders. So why does he love the Lord? Well, his reasoning is simple. God heard him, had mercy, and rescued him. Look at it in verse 1 and 2. I love the Lord. Why? Because he has heard me, my voice and my plea for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him 
as long as I live. Now notice the emphasis. I love the Lord because he heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. God wasn't simply listening to the pleas of all humanity like a king listens to the general complaints of a people group. He certainly does that, but this is more personal. The psalmist had confidence that God had listened to his plea for mercy, that he had heard my voice, like a parent who takes a child to the public park, right? There may be dozens of children there screaming and giggling, but above the cacophony of voices, a parent can discern the sound of their own child's voice. And like a parent, God is saying, I recognize that cry, I know that voice. That's my son, Liam, or Michael, or Margo. I I know that cry anywhere. See, we, we do well to remember that God hears our cry. He knows your voice like a loving father. He tunes his ear to the cry of his children. He drives the point home again in verse 2. He inclined his ear to me. The picture is of God bending over to hear even his child's faintest whimper. And as we consider the desperate situation the psalmist would have been in, that whisper, well, he he wasn't even strong enough to whisper. Look at verse 3. Look at his dire circumstances. The snares of death had encompassed him. The pangs of Sheol had laid hold of him. He was suffering in distress and anguish. Death encompassing him like like hunters who use dogs. There was just no way for him to escape. The pangs of Sheol, that means the grave, were about to lay hold of him. He not only suffered great distress, he was at his utter end, completely worn down physically, emotionally, on his deathbed. And what we see God doing is leaning over, inclining his ear to someone who can barely whisper, God, help. Notice further in verse 2 again, because he did that, because he inclined his ear to me and he's bending over to hear me, he says, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. I'm an, I'm an adoptive parent, and as a parent who's adopted older children, both my wife and I are well acquainted with both the challenges as well as the importance of bonding. And bonding does not happen automatically. Bonding takes time. And it happens as the parent proves both trustworthy and available to the child, especially in their moments of deepest need. And it requires persistent care and presence and gentleness until the child truly believes, is convinced, this is a forever relationship, not temporary, but permanent. And when that happens, the child joyfully embraces you and calls out for you as long as they live, by one name, mom, dad. See, in a similar way, the psalmist has bonded to God for the rest of his life because God has listened to his cry as a loving father. He knows that he can trust him. He's convinced that this is a forever relationship, that it is not temporary but permanent. It is not one of convenience, but it is committed. Now notice in verse 4 his call for help. He says, then I called on the name of the Lord, and in Your English Bible, all four letters are capitalized, L-O-R-D, which symbolizes this is God's personal name that the Jewish people didn't like to write down, his personal name of Yahweh. I called on the name of Yahweh, 
O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. See, he's not calling on some nameless deity, but one who has revealed himself by name as a covenantal God of promise. And his prayer is simple and direct. Yahweh, deliver my soul. He prays the way desperate people pray. There's, there's no religious pretense here. There's no multiplication of words, no, no ritual. It's, it's personal, it's honest, it's sincere, it's raw, and it's to the point. Deliver my soul. We do well to remember that God hears the simple, honest prayers of his children. We do not need to multiply our words or rehearse what we want to say to get it just right before he listens. Why don't we need to do that? Well, look at verse 5. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. See, we must remember that God hears our cries for help because he is gracious and righteous and merciful. He doesn't hear our cries because we've done something that demands his attention or we've screamed loud enough and long enough to interrupt his busy schedule in running the universe. See, how could we ever demand the attention of the God of the universe? He's God. Who are we to demand his special attention and intervention? I mean, practically speaking, you are one of seven billion human beings currently living on planet Earth, which is a relatively small planet in a relatively moderate-sized solar system, which is merely one solar system of an estimated 100 million solar systems just in our neck of the universe— called the Milky Way, which is just one galaxy of several billion galaxies in the universe. So are you feeling small and insignificant yet? So it's ridiculous to think God is obliged to listen to us because we are unique or special. If God ever listens to us, it's it's not because we are special, but because he is special. And morally speaking, do we really believe we can recommend our ourselves to God for some type of special reward. As you honestly look, not just at your behavior, but beyond your behavior, to your words, even to the words of people you like. But then look beyond your words, to your attitudes. Do you really think you can make demands of a perfectly righteous God? Let's not be ridiculous. Practically speaking, morally speaking, we are ignorant fools to believe we can demand God's attention or intervention. A parasite has far better chance of recommending himself to a farmer than we do recommending ourselves to God. So if we are ever to have any hope that God hears our cries, our hope must be based on not who we are, but on who he is. Not on anything we do to recommend ourselves to him. It must be solely based on on his character, who he is. He is gracious and merciful, so abounding with compassion and love that he stoops to hear the frail cries of us insignificant human beings. Yet he is more than gracious and merciful. He's also righteous, it says in verse 5, meaning he cares about vindicating The righteous, no matter how small or insignificant they may be or they may feel, that he wants to right all wrongs. And on the flip side, if you happen to be unrighteous and want God to hear your cries, that means, well, God must hear your cries based on the righteousness of another, 
not your righteousness. And this is the very hope of the gospel of Christianity, that God does hear your cries based on the righteousness of his son who stood in your place as a condemned sinner on the cross so that you could stand in his place as the righteous child of God and be heard by the Father. So in summary, there, there you have it. Why does the psalmist love God? Well, God heard his cry and had mercy and rescued him for one simple reason, because God is gracious and merciful and righteous. Now, here's the million-dollar question. Do you believe that about God? Maybe you're saying to yourself, well, I kind of believe God is gracious and merciful and he hears my cries, but honestly, Dave, I struggle. Maybe you're not even at that point. You say, I don't believe that. I'm not sure I ever can. I'm not even sure I want to, and it doesn't sound safe to. Or maybe some of you are saying, well, I didn't believe it either about God, but, but now I do. See, whatever your state of mind, whether you, you kind of believe it or you don't believe it or you didn't, but now you do, this psalm benefits you because it will either help you celebrate or it will help you navigate your way into this beautiful reality that God listens because he's gracious and merciful and righteous. How so? For starters, the psalmist himself wasn't always confident about God either. But he became so, and if it can happen to him, then it can happen to you. What makes you say that, Dave? Well, let's look at verse 6, where it states, God preserves the simple. Now, if you're skeptical, you're probably thinking, well, doesn't that undermine your point, Dave? Doesn't that mean that only the naive will find comfort in the religious platitudes of of an all-loving God and pie in the sky who listens and cares for us? That verse 6 refers to only the gullible who who don't know any better, who haven't had the time or any reason to consider the alternatives because they've had the charmed life and haven't had to wrestle with deep questions of doubt and despair. And that would be a great, well-reasoned objection if the simple that he talks about in verse 6 are those who lack experience are the naive who haven't been through life's battles and haven't had to wrestle through troubling questions that typically arise in the minds of those who live in life's battles. But the simple spoken of in the first half of verse 6 were not always simple, but they are now. See, the first half of verse 6 is modified by the second half of verse 6, where it says, when I was brought low, God saved me. See, remember, the psalmist himself had faced life's harshest realities. He had suffered much affliction and despair. He wrestled to the point of exhaustion. So the simplicity he speaks of is not natural simplicity of the naive and inexperienced. Rather, it's the acquired simplicity of the wise. The simplicity that a person arrives at after exhausting all the other alternatives that they've pursued in their quest for truth. It's the simplicity that is reserved for those who are brought low. We must not confuse the matter. 
It is not the simpli- it, 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 it's not the simplicity of ignorant, innocent children, but the simplicity of battle-tested veterans who have returned to the fundamental principles that they naturally held during childhood. It's the simplicity of scholars like A.N. Wilson, who was a writer and a critic who had abandoned Christianity only to come full circle in 2009 when he wrote an article, Why I Believe in God Again. It's the rediscovered simplicity of people like G.K. Chesterton who wrote, I did try to be in advance of the age. Like everyone else, I tried to be 10 minutes in advance of the truth, and I found that I was 1,800 years behind it. When I fancied that I stood alone, I was really in the ridiculous position of being backed up by all of Christendom. See, this isn't the simplicity, this isn't the simplicity of adult It's the simplicity of the wise, of men and women who were made simple, not because they refused to think and wrestle, but because their wrestling and thinking led them to one conclusion. I can trust God, the God revealed to me in the Holy Scriptures, even if I don't understand him completely. In fact, I must trust him. It's the sanest choice I know to make. This rediscovered simplicity was captured perfectly by Evelyn Underhill, who said it this way, If God were small enough to be understood, he wouldn't be big enough to be worshipped. So this psalm is the testimony of a, of a man who came to love God by being brought low. He rediscovered a simple faith. And he realizes God hears those who call upon him, and he has mercy and rescues because he is a gracious and righteous God. And this leads the psalmist to return to resting in God, which is our second point. How does he rest? Well, by returning to the God of rest in verses 7 through 11. Look at it, verse 7. Return, O my soul, to your rest. Now, two things are clear. First... The self-admonishment to return indicates that he had left this rest, and now he's returning back to it. Second, notice the term, your rest. Even though he had left this rest, he had not lost it irretrievably. It was still his to enjoy if only he would return to it. So how does he return to his rest? Well, by remembering the Lord, notice he states the basis of his rest in the very next verse, the second half of of verse 7. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Well, how so? Verse 8. For you delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. This rest provided total deliverance. Notice, soul from death. That's spiritual rest. Eyes from tears. That's, that's emotional and psychological rest. Feet from stumbling. That's physical or situation or circumstantial rest. See, it's not physical deliverance only, but, but true rest. Those who suffer with PTSD may be delivered physically from the battlefield, but another battle rages on their, in their heart and mind, but not so with this psalmist. See, he knows God doesn't rest until we experience total rest in him. Notice his rest transcends his pain, for he says in the next verse, verse 10, I believed even when I spoke, I'm greatly afflicted. 
See, he was honest to God about his pain. I, I'm greatly afflicted. He, he didn't minimize or ignore his pain. But despite the pain and suffering, he maintained his rest by trusting God over his situation, by, by trusting God over his feelings, by trusting God over his pain. See, through the storms, though the storms of affliction raged, God was his anchor, the one who held him fast. Furthermore, he trusts God over the opinion of others. Look at verse 11. I said in my alarm, all men are liars. See, life's battles cause much alarm. When you go through distress and affliction and death, if you ever endured many of life's battles, you probably also have experienced how terrible people can be as comforters. Even well-meaning people can be surprisingly unhelpful, saying terribly obnoxious, irritating, and toxic things. They don't mean to, but they do. And it usually starts with phrases such as, well, at least such and such didn't happen. Or, I know exactly how you're feeling. But then careless comparisons just prove their ignorance. Or they say things like, well, just do this and that, and and you'll be okay. And like Job, the psalmist here calls out in frustration, all men are liars. (laughs) But contrary to appearances, he's not descending into self-destructive cynicism. Well, how do we know this? Let's not forget this is a psalm of thanksgiving to God. He, He is counting the way God loves him and the joy he has. It's a joyful psalm. So why the apparent angry words, all men are liars, in, in the middle of this happy psalm? See, he is he is disenchanted. He's not disenchanted with God, but he is finally disenchanted with the ways of man. See, since the fall of man into sin, a a powerful spell has been cast upon the earth, and this spell hides God's goodness and convinces us that we really cannot trust him, that we can only trust ourselves, that, that we are alone, that God doesn't care, and that we can only make things right by working together either individually or corporately as a human race. But pain and suffering has the power to break that spell, to disenchant us. We become disenchanted with ourselves, with mankind in general, and his defiant attitude, his refusal to believe the interpretation of humanity is evidence that the spell has been broken. And now he sees things from God's perspective. And his defiance reflects not cynicism, but a commitment to maintain his sanity and not succumb again to the spell cast upon all humanity since the fall. So now that the spell has been broken and he sees clearly, returning to rest in the Lord, trusting God over his circumstances, over his feelings, over his pain, over the opinion of others. What does he do? Well, lastly, he renders his service to God. This is our third point. He renders his service to the Lord, verses 12 through 19. Three things he renders. Joyful anticipation, loving devotion, and public worship. Look at verse 12. What shall I render the Lord for all the benefits, for all his benefits to me? 
This language of rendering to the Lord for all his benefits to me can easily sound like a payback, implying that grace is like a mortgage, that you have to pay back every last cent. However, as we read on, we realize that the psalmist no more thinks he can pay God back for the grace and mercy he has received any more than anyone can pay back the sun for the light and heat that we receive from it. See, the only service one might render to the sun or to God is joyful anticipation of, of more light and life and heat. So it's, it's not payback as much as it's joyful anticipation. And this he clarifies in the next verse, verse 13. This is what he's rendering. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Lifting up the cup of salvation is not an act of payment, but it's another act of receiving, which magnifies the ongoing grace of God. In other words, I will lift up my cup again and ask the Lord to fill my cup. So to render to the Lord the cup of the salvation means to go on receiving from the Lord so that the Lord's inexhaustible goodness will be magnified, as John Piper clarifies. Lifting up the cup of salvation signifies taking the Lord's satisfying salvation in hand, drinking it and expecting more. Honeymooners, whether in their 20s or 70s, know what this type of rendering is all about. They do it instinctively. They're they're not confused. Ask our very own director of women's ministry and Tom McConnell, who was married yesterday. The greatest payment you can make to a beloved is to drink in their love with joyful anticipation for more. It's the most precious thing that two lovers share. See, this honeymoon excitement filled with anticipation, eager to receive more, is but a pale reflection of the rendering to the Lord that the psalmist speaks about here in verses 12 and 13. So the first thing that the psalmist is rendering to the Lord is celebrating God's grace by joyfully lifting up the cup of salvation, anticipating God to refill it to the brim every time he drinks it down. So first, he renders joyful anticipation. Second, loving devotion. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. What vows? Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, than he lay down his life for his friend. The highest form of love is evidence when someone is willing to lay down their life for their beloved. And this is the vow the psalmist makes in verses 14 through 16. And look at how he continues in verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosened my bonds. Now, this verse is commonly read at funerals to give comfort to grievers. And while that's not inappropriate, that understanding hits upon an implied meaning, but it misses the primary and direct meaning of this text in context. See, the context is not a funeral service for those that have died, but it's a worship service for those who have been delivered from death on the battlefield. So why would survivors in a worship service say, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. Why would they be saying this in worship? Well, how many soldiers really understand what they're getting into when they enlist? How can they? Who could have imagined the horrors of D-Day when the Allies stormed the shores of Normandy? But imagine... 
a soldier after already having served their time on the front, front line of World War II, reenlists. See, that is a person who truly loves his country and is thankful for his citizenship. That's the sense we get here. It's declared by a battle-hardened veteran who has fought long in life's battles, been encompassed by death, and experience God's deliverance. And so out of love for God, he re-ups his commitment. He re-enlists. He not only has joyful anticipation, but loving devotion. And lastly, public worship. Verse 17 through 19, I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of his people in the courts of, of the house of the Lord. In your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. See, he wants his thankfulness to the Lord to be known not only in deeds on the battlefield, but in song. He wants it shouted from the rooftops. He wants to declare in the presence of all God's people. He wants it to echo throughout the streets of the city. May this song... Psalm 116, reflect the song of our heart so that we can join with the psalmist and declare with him, how do I love thee, O Lord? I can't even count the ways. For I joyfully anticipate more and more of your blessings. For you have listened to my cries because you are merciful and gracious. You have rescued me. You have restored me to true rest. I have been restored in every way possible, or will be, for you are gracious. Let that be our song. I pray to God that it becomes more and more your song. Let's pray. God, thank you for Psalm 116. Like the top 40 of America's greatest hits that we listen to on the radio, these songs move us because they are the songs of your people but they move us far more than any popular pop songs on the radio because these are songs about your love and your mercy, how gracious and powerful you are, how loving to listen to the prayers of your children, to bow low and turn your ear to our faintest cries for help. God, we pray that we would discover more and more of this rest, and as we do, we would render our hearts in service to you And as we do that, that service would be a joyful anticipation that you will have a bigger grace than we can ever exhaust, that it would be a loyal devotion that we would re-up, being willing to sacrifice all for you out of love for you, and that we would want to do this not just in deed, but to join with others in public worship, declaring your praises so that it resounds in the streets of Lancaster and around the world. In Jesus' name, amen.